Well, good morning. It's good to see you. We're in Galatians. Go figure, right? Galatians chapter 3. We are going to finish chapter 3 today, moving on to chapter 4 next week. It's exciting, isn't it, to move on through that? <clears throat> we, uh, if you're just joining us midway through, we're welcome and uh, glad that you're a part of this, this series. This series is in Galatians, and it's called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. Uh, there was a group of people who wanted to try to add to the gospel message of Christ alone, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And they wanted to add things to that from the Old Testament law given to Moses. And we're going to look into that a little more deeply today. Uh, one of the things I, I want us to, to think about as well is, as we look at Galatians, it's not, you're, not, you're not finding some real immediate, emotional, practical things. It's not like, hey, this is what's going on, go do this differently. You know, we kind of get that encouragement sometimes, we can walk out, oh yeah, pep talk, I'm going now. Uh, this text is a rich, rich text, and, and what I hope is that we, we come to it for the fullness of it, and that when we're done, it has this ever-deepening impact on our lives and our theological view and understanding of God's ways uh, as found in Scripture. That, that it should, should deepen that. And, and it's interesting, I, I had a student who... Um, who went through this book with me in Sunday school, oh, probably 10 years ago, I taught this, maybe, maybe a little less, eight years ago. And, and it was similar, you know, we, we, in structure, we probably took 20-some weeks on it instead of just the 13, but it, it, it impacted this student's life phenomenally. Like, to this day, this, this person still comes and says, Galatians, it's, I mean, it's amazing, this is the gospel, you add anything to it, Jesus plus is no good, and, and in fact, there was a time when the student was, was approached by some other, some other folks that called themselves Christians, but behaved more like the Judaizers, and were trying to add things to the gospel message, and he remembered, he's like, I, wait a minute, that sounds like Jesus plus, and see, the practicality of the, the richness and deepness and fullness of God's word is lived out in its entirety through our whole life. It's not always meant to be as quick fix as you walk out the door, amen? So, so I know that, that sometimes as we go through the text of Galatians, if you're looking for that quick fix, the next half hour, 45 minutes, maybe a little, little kind of like, oh, this is not getting me what I want. But I hope that you're here to, to see and hear from God that will, will change your whole as, outlook and aspect of your life about the gospel, about the message of Christ, that when we leave, it's, it's rich and full and there's a deep transformation that's, that's been understood in our hearts because of what God is doing. So I, I wanted to preface that because there's also another practical thing I think we can be doing. This student and, and myself and others who have gone through books like this before in the past have, have just had a great time wrestling the pages of Scripture. And, and you know, one of the things about two years ago, we stopped putting the text of the Scripture on the screen. Why did we do that? So we would open our Bibles, that we would open our Bibles and we would see what God has in store for us with our very own eyes. There's something living and active about God's Word, and when we open it, God has this ability to transform us, and it imprints on our heart as well. Uh, I, you know, I have, I have my old Bible, it's, it's my Bible, and I had it probably, I used it probably for 12 years. I mean, it was, it was it's, I still have it, it's, it's weathered and torn and tattered and worn and underlined and highlighted and squared and circled. I mean, that, that's what I do with my Bible. And I, I encourage you to do that. Now, I also respect you if you're not one of those who likes to write in your Bible. If you want to write in a journal and you want to keep your Bible perfect, that's great. No, no biggie. 
But one of the things that I would encourage you to do, and I know many have started bringing their Bibles to church, and I hear a lot of, a lot of this going on, right? You hear that? That's a really good sound. I really love to hear that. But if we would do that, if we would bring the word in and then, and then circle and underline and highlight and, and let God impact your life and impact you through his word, you'll find it even more rich down the road. There are times I'm still wondering, I'll, I'll think, oh, you know, there's this, this passage that says this in Philippians. So I'll turn to Philippians. And in my mind, what's imprinted in my mind is that Bible, right, that, that 12, 12 years of use Bible that has it marked exactly on the exact page. And I know where it is. I can see it in my mind, what page it's on, where it is in the page, and what I've done there. So when I look for it, oh, there it is, there it is. With, with the new Bible I have, and I'm, I'm starting to get used to it now, but it's not there. It's not there like it was in the old one, right? So it's, it's getting used to. So have a Bible that's your go-to, right? Have a, have a go-to Bible. And then feel free to mark it up. As we open the Scriptures, turn there. Get, get used to turning there and mark that, that Scripture up, those pages up. So you can have that, that word imprinted on your, on your heart. So that's part of the practicality as we study the Word of God exegetically through Scripture, especially a book like this. You may not get that emotional like, oh, I'm so good. I, I change, this, this changed me today. I'm going to leave. It may be more uh, rich than that where you underline something or you saw a word or a phrase and you, you said, this, this is what God's given me today, right? And then in the fullness of it, as you, as you study the fullness of the text, there's a deep, deep understanding of God's ways that we find in Scripture. So... That's, that's what I wanted to encourage you with this morning as far as the practicality of it. So where are we in Galatians? Well, we just got done with the first part of chapter 3, right, last week. And Paul had, had set up this argument about, um, let's, let's see, if you, if you, the Judaizers, want to try to measure up by using the law, let's see how it measures up. I told you about the yardstick that we found at, uh, at Sportsman's Warehouse, and, and one side had real measurements on it, and the other side had inches that were about this big. So when you told your fish story, you could really tell, oh yeah, my fish was 30 inches long, and it was just a fishtail because you weren't measuring properly. And that's what these Judaizers were doing. They weren't measuring properly against the promise of God, the covenant of God. And Paul kind of rebuked them and, and debunked their thought on the, on the law. But there's, there's a question now that comes up as we transition into the second half of chapter 3. There's a, a question, and, and, and Paul, what Paul is great at doing, he is great at thinking logically through the text, He's great at thinking logically through, through doctrine and thinking logically about how this is going to be perceived and what arguments may be brought up because of it. He's an expert at that. So as he's writing this epistle, it's not like he sent a note to Galatia and then, or to, to the churches in Galatia and then they sent a response back, right? This letter in fullness was sent. So he, he knows, he writes something, he says, hmm, well, they're, I said this and now they're going to say this. It's like a giant chess game for him. And then he counters again, says, and I know you're thinking this, and you'll ask this question, so I'll answer that question next. Oh, oh now you're thinking this, so now I'm going to answer that question next. And, and he keeps on answering the questions that he knows will come up once this letter hits the, hits the desk or table or household or synagogue of those places in Galatia. So he's thinking ahead, and that's what we can see today. So, so he said, hey, the law doesn't measure up. So today we're looking at, then, why do we have the law? What good is it? What is the law there for? If it's there, and, and we're, we, you, you, Paul, you even quoted it. You've even talked about the law. If you quote it, you mean it doesn't mean it's gone and done away with. What, why is the law there? And that's what we're going to look at today, the question, why is the law there? And as we look at that question, we're going to find uh, some different things that we discover when we ask that question that Paul presents to us, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll get into our text and jump into our points. Father, we are so grateful to be here today. 
God, to, to submit ourselves to your spirit and to the word of God. And God, I, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to be receptive to what you have for us today. That you would stir in our hearts a need for repentance, a need to empty ourselves of us and to fill us with you. And God, that you would move us into a place of, of conviction and change and challenge us to be more obedient to you. That we would follow you wholeheartedly. And God, we are thankful. We are so thankful for your grace. And God, that we are saved by grace through faith and in Christ alone and nothing else needs to be added. God, help us to embrace you as the all-satisfying everything to us. We praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in chapter 3, uh, looking at verses 15 through 29. Ready to go? Got your Bibles? We're going to rustle a little bit. Okay. 15. Brothers, brothers, I am using a human illustration. No one sets aside even a human covenant that's been ratified or makes additions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And it does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but, and to your seed, referring to one who is Christ. And I say this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God so as to cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is from the law, it is no longer from the promise. But God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was ordered through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just for one person, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be by the law. But the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you have been, been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So today we're going to ask that question, why the law? And as we ask that question, we're going to see what we discover as we go through this text. The first thing we discover, number one, is this, that the law does not change the promise. The law does not change the promise or override the promise. We start in verse 15 and going through 18. He says, Brothers, I am using a human illustration. No one sets aside a human covenant that's been ratified or makes additions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. and He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but and to your seed, referring to one who is Christ. And I say this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God so as to cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is from the law, it is no longer from the promise. But God granted it to Abraham through the promise. So let's look at this. Let's pick this apart. What we see is, is argued is the depth of God's covenant with Abraham and thus with us. And we need to understand that for, for in terms of, of covenant 
and he says, let's use a human illustration. If we make a, a covenant, a human to human, we don't nullify that. If it's been ratified, we don't change that. It doesn't just arbitrarily tra- change. So what, what men have, have established as unchanging, how much more would God establish as unchanging his covenant? See, God's covenant is w- far deeper than my covenant with you, isn't it? That, that I'm a person, I'm a human, I'm, I'm a sinful at nature, right? So, so if, if I'm that way and I might break my word with you, that's a shame. But here we have God, and I'm not supposed to. The word is supposed to be, my word is my word, the covenant's the covenant. But here we have God, who is perfect and just and holy, who gives his word. How much more will he keep his than you and I, humans who shouldn't break theirs? What's, when humans make a covenant, what Paul is saying, when humans made a covenant and ratified it, uh, it's, it, it cannot be set aside. It can't be changed. What's done has been done. And the Judaizers, what they're saying also is that something better came along. I, I get it, Paul. I get you know, that there was a promise, but something better came along and took the place of the promise. And what they're saying is it took the place of grace. And that is dangerous to say that. But God, listen, God is the one who entered the covenant. I want us to get this. God is the one who entered the covenant. right? How much more likely, if God is to enter the covenant, will he be to keep it than mere humans? Now, there were some covenants, listen, that, that, that God entered into conditional, conditionally. He made a covenant and said, listen, I will do this if you do this. He made those deals with, with Israel, his people. He made those covenants with his people. But this was not one of them. The promise was not one that it was, it was conditional. It was not a deal struck up with Abraham like they were just you know, a couple of buddies writing down um, their, their agreement on paper. It was not even a covenant that Abraham made with God. It was a covenant, a promise that God made, get this, with himself to Abraham. It was God's covenant, a covenant of God's grace. So God didn't enter into a covenant with somebody and say, you and I, let's strike a deal. He and the Godhead of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, came up with with the promise, the covenant on, on his own, and gave it to Abraham. In fact, if you look at Genesis 15, Abraham was asleep when God ratified this covenant. It had nothing to do with Abraham being present. It had everything to do with God <clears throat> Almighty. It was what God would do. So the covenant wouldn't be changed or modified. And that's what they're arguing. Like, well, it's changed. It's being adapted. It's, we're, we've got something new now. It's, it's the newest thing. Let's go with that. And the covenant wouldn't be changed or modified because it was permanent. And it was inseparable from God, and it was inseparable, we see in Scripture here, from God's supreme covenant. What's God's supreme covenant? That supreme covenant would be seen fulfilled in who? Jesus Christ. So if you're going to add to and then take away the promise, what are you taking away? Christ. And if Christ is gone, then our faith is nothing. That's not our equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus something equals nothing. And that's what these Judaizers were doing. They were trying to, to say that, that, you know what, the law is what is important. Therefore, Christ, there's no purpose for Christ. Because you couldn't separate Jesus Christ from the covenant God made with Abraham at the beginning. That was his covenant. That was his promise that a Redeemer was coming. And, and by the way, he mentions 430 years had passed. And what he's saying is, is, it was actually 600, like maybe 25 years, I think, from Abraham until Moses at Sinai. 
But God repeated his covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And finally, the last time he spoke that covenant was with Jacob, 430 years right before uh, Moses. So God, God reminded Jacob and, and his, all his descendants, the promise, the promise, my covenant with you. And then 430 years later, we have the law. And, and, and what's, what Paul is trying to say is no amount of time could even nullify the promise of God. And no additions were required. Why? Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen? Then we go to verse 18. The matter at stake here is, is the inheritance from God. It says, for if the inheritance is from the law, it is no longer from the promise. If it's from the law, it's not from the promise. You can't have both or two conflicting ways of salvation. There's one, and there's always been one. But God granted it to Abraham through the promise. And that, that, that inheritance, that is that, that's our blessing, our salvation. And the pro- problem was that the Judaizers wanted to add something to God's promise and, to, and with, with the law. They would argue, here's what they would argue, that the law was now necessary as a means to salvation and the promise alone could not contend with that. The promise alone was not sufficient to save. The law had to be added as well and it was necessary as a means to salvation. And the problem is that if, if the law is the means to salvation, what we see in Scripture in verse 18 is that it nullifies the promise. If the law is there, it has to win out. It's either the law or it's the promise. And that's what Paul is arguing for here. It's the law or the promise. And and we have to understand the law does not change the promise. If we need Jesus, we don't need the law. If we need the law, then we don't need Jesus. That is a dangerous road to drive down, isn't it? So it's a tough track. We want Jesus. What else do we find as we ask that question, why the law? Number two, the law is not greater than the promise. We find that the law is not greater than the promise. So, okay, okay, fine. It doesn't change the promise. The promise is still there. They, see, he's trying to argue this, right? The Judaizers say, okay, fine. It doesn't change it or nullify the promise. Uh, they, ha- they have to be there together, but, but ours is better. The law is greater. And Paul's saying, well, I don't think so. The law is not greater than the promise. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. Why the law then? It was added because of transgression until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was ordered through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person, but God is one. So why the law? Is it, maybe it's better. Certainly it's better than the, the promise at this point because it's newer and we have it and we, we need to add it to it. And Paul said, no, that's not what we have to do. The law was not the way to salvation. The law pointed to the way of salvation. And it does not change the promise. It doesn't mean it's greater than the promise. What it does is it, it cooperates with it. And we're going to see that through the rest of our text, that the law is there to cooperate with the promise. You see, the, the law was given to drive sinful people into desperate guilt and awareness of their need for a deliverer. When the law is, is read, when the law is said, when the law is before you, you and I will stand condemned underneath it. It helps people recognize that they are in violation of God's standards and compels them to seek His grace and His mercy because they cannot do it on their own. Turn to the book of Romans with me. Romans uh, chapter 7. We'll keep our finger here in Galatians. 
Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 7. Paul has a lot to say about this, by the way, in the book of Romans, and you can study further there on your own. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7 and going through 8. So what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And sin then, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Apart from the law, sin is dead. There's no sin. I'm not wrong because there's no law telling me I'm wrong. But when you have the law, sin is very much alive and very much seen at the forefront. uh, And we see ourselves for who we are. Do you remember last week what I talked about with this? We talked about this, right? I talked about my son, Wesley. And I talked about how, how as a parent, and he's two years old, I talked about as a, as a parent how we have to lay down the law, right? Uh-oh, sounds like what we're talking about. And, and what, I, what I say about my son, I said uh, the way I correct him and, and the way I guide his heart is to first tell him that what he's doing is wrong. Because see, he, he doesn't quite get it. He, he probably knows and, and feels like, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that to my sister, but eh, no one told me not to right? And he did. Or whatever he might have done, right? The guy is just like a, he's like a linebacker. He just, he'll go to Bailey and just, and just kind of grab her and just they'll fall over together. Like, I'm just going to take you out right now. But so we'll, whatever I have to do in correcting my son, I'll look at him or my wife will look at him and say, Wesley, you can't do this. That is wrong or that's bad. And remember what, the face I gave you last week, what, what my son did? He, he became condemned under the law. He, he, he kind of just tightens up and he, oh, man. He just, and, and he may not even make a sound, but his just the guilt all over his face. And now he has a corner, right? We have a staircase in our, uh, in our house up to a little open loft area, and, and it has a landing. So he'll, he'll do this, and then he'll, he'll run, run over to the stairs and get up on the landing and kind of look through the little ballast there and peek through and see if I'm watching or see if he's still wrong. Yeah, you're still wrong, right? You can't do that anymore. But that's what the law does. When you lay down the law, it, it convicts. It tells us we're wrong. We're cursed. We're, we Don't covet. Oh, I'm coveting. I'm wrong. And see, sin is alive because of the law. The law cooperates with the promise because when the law presents itself, it tells you and it tells me that we are wrong and in need of a Savior. And it points us not back to the law to fulfill it because we've already broken it. It points us to who? Jesus, the promise and the grace that he offers us. God's ready to give us grace. And we still should be teaching God's moral standards. We should still be talking about God's morality. I, I, so, I said this last week that, that we have this civil law and we have ceremonial law and we have moral law. And the civil and ceremonial is what's dropped off and what's been fulfilled in Christ. And we can look at that and uh, embrace it, it can, uh, based on our own conviction or not. But, but the moral law of God does not change and we don't abandon the moral law of God. Okay, and the moral law of God is written, I said, on the hearts of individuals. That we are created in the image of God with that image of morality stamped inside of us, whether we want to or not. But the law makes it very clear then. This is what is right. This is what is wrong. It doesn't just leave it up to instinct anymore. And I talked about in America how, how and in the world, in a whole, right, the whole world has, has gone astray from the morality of God. They've embraced their own morals, their own standards, their own right and their own wrong. And, and what they say is, I'll do what I want to do, what feels best to me, as long as I'm not hurting somebody else. And they're dead wrong. 
But what you and I can't do, like, we're not going to be, in a, in a sense, like, oh, you're being bad. We need to take a stand at least. I'm not going to be as passive as the world. I'm not going to be as passive as the world and say, listen, you know, I, yeah, I don't really have an opinion about this. Yes, I do, because God has an opinion about this. And I'll be okay sharing that. And I want you to understand, you know, people think it's, it's all about judgment. These Christians are all about judgment, judgment, judgment. You know what was about judgment was the law. God's law was about judgment. And when God's law presented itself to me and to your heart, we stood condemned and cursed. But God is not a God who just says, I want you to feel condemned and cursed and stay that way. Ha, ha, ha. What, is, what does God do? What do I do with my son? I pull him off those stairs and I say, listen, I love you, but this, this is what's redeeming. This is what's right. This is what's, what's wrong. And here's how, we, here's how we operate. Here's how we live. And here's how you can live securely as part of my family. And see, what is, so what does God do for you and for me when, when we're presented with the law, the moral code of God? He doesn't just leave us there to stand condemned underneath it. He points us with it to Jesus. He says, there's no way you can be good enough. But my son was. Run then to his grace and believe in faith that he is who he said he was and, and let him fill you with his righteousness. Let him wrap you with his, clo- his clothes, with his, his robe of righteousness and be found in him, not having a righteousness of your own because you don't have any but a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ alone. Amen? That's, that's what Jesus does. So as we take a stand, and, and I know it's politically incorrect to take a stand. I don't care. We have to do that. The Word of God is what we stand on. We have to take that stand. And as we take a stand, it's the law going out, the morality of God is seen, and maybe someone will see that they are under the law and under the curse and be drawn and pointed to Jesus. That's what we want, because that's what we got. I'm not perfect. I still fail under the law. But I live by grace, through faith, and in Christ alone. So can you. So can our community. So can our world. It's there for them for the taking. So stand. Be willing to stand on morality and say, this is right. This is wrong. And like I said this last week, too, we're going we're gonna to get into that pretty quick. Chapter 5 in our text is going to get pretty tough. And we agree that we'll let God be God and let God speak on his behalf. Then it talks about in verses 19 and 20 here, it talks about this mediator. He says, he's trying to tell us why the, the promise is greater than the, the law and why the, why the law isn't greater than the promise. He says, because the law was given with a mediator and the promise was given by God himself, God alone. While God was the author and the giver of the law, and he was present with Moses at Mount Sinai when it was given. In some way, we see in the scripture, in some way not fully understood, both Acts and Galatians and Hebrews tell us that it was given to God, given by God to Moses through angels, through a mediator. There was, there was something going on there that was different than when God gave the covenant to Abraham. God gave us the law, and then, and then Moses gave the law to the people. He was a mediator, right? And God gave us the law, or sorry, gave us law through mediators, but he gave Abraham the promise as a friend to friend. From the heart of God to Abraham and to all of us. For all nations that would exhibit faith and belief in Jesus Christ. So because one required a mediator, it wasn't quite as good as the one who said, this is God stamping it with his word, his approval, 
And that's, how, what, that's what Paul's making the argument of. Abraham received the covenant, prom, covenant promise from God, but had no part in establishing it or keeping it. The responsibility of the covenant promise from God to Abraham was on God alone, and that's why the promise is greater than the law. So, the next question, okay, fine. What do we do with the law? What's, what's the point? And, and he kind of talked about that. It's to show us that we're sinful. But what's, what's the next point? Well, number three is this. The law, he says, is not contrary to the promise, or it's not opposed to the promise. Let's look at verses 21 through 26. Is the law then therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be uh, by the law. But the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power, so that the promise by, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's look into that. This, this word contrary. It's translated, it can be translated opposed. So the law and the promise are not opposed to one another. God gave both the promise and he gave, even through mediators, the law. And God is not working against himself. Paul wants to make sure he's, people understand that. Listen, this is not a, a one or the other. This is both have to harmonize with each other because God is not working against himself. It has to, to be found in harmony. The law was not greater because it could not save and it could not give life. That's why it wasn't greater. And I want you to understand that, that if that position was held by the Judaizers, if they said, yes, the law was what gives life, the law is what leads to salvation, then it would be against the promise because there are not multiple conflicting ways to salvation. If there were, if there were multiple avenues, multiple ways, conflicting ways to salvation, then God's grace and Christ's sacrifice would have been for nothing. And we saw that earlier in Galatians. It said Christ would have been crucified for nothing. If we can get righteousness through the law, let's do that. Why do you have to go? Why Jesus have to go through what he did? Because it doesn't, life doesn't come through the law. Life comes through the promise. And that's because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Turn back to Romans real quick. Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> now that you've warmed up and you've been there once before. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. There's this attitude in the Judaizers, like, I want the law. i got to have this law. This, we follow the law. It's all about the law for salvation. Paul speaks to it in, in Romans as well. Chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith, right? But Israel, these, these law keepers, pursuing the law for righteousness has not achieved the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by what? Works. They stumbled over, a, over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. Yet the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Who's that stumbling stone? 
It's Jesus Christ. And see, it was this pursuing and this worshiping of the law that led Israel and led these Judaizers and leads, could lead us into the self-righteous religion of works, resulting in rejecting of Christ, who was a, a stumbling block, a stone thrown right out there for us to trip over. Still, they rejected him. Christ was called, the gospel was called a stumbling block for the Jews. The law was meant to give, uh, the law, law was not meant to give life and to override the promise. It was not meant to do that. It was meant to regulate life and cooperate with the promise by pointing us to Jesus because he is the one that fulfilled the promise. And then he uses the illustration of the guardian. If we look at this illustration of the guardian in, in verse 24 of Galatians, uh, back in chapter 3, it says, The law then was our guardian until Christ. So here's, let me explain the guardian here. In, in a Roman household, the guardian was, was a slave that was in charge of the children. It was like a, like a nanny slash school teacher slash tutor slash parent, but didn't have the parental rights. Right? The mother and father, the, the kid was theirs. But this, this guardian took care of the discipline getting them to events, getting them to school, getting them, getting them straightened out, lined out, because the parents were too busy with whatever they were doing, right? They were a guardian. So and it, and it's, it's not even fair to say that they were like a school teacher, because a school teacher, we, we send our kids to school, we have a little bit of an idea of what they're, they're learning, or we should have a big idea of what they're learning right at school, but it may not line up with what we think is right, so we have to kind of undo that at home and talk through that at home, right? And, and, or maybe you're homeschooling and you're getting that ability. This guardian taught and lined everything up with what the parents wanted. This guardian was, was the guide of the parents so that when this child grew up and graduated out of the care of the guardian, they were a full-fledged adult member of this household, that they looked like a member of this household, that they acted like a member of this household, that they were in line with what this household stood for. And what, what Paul is arguing is that the law is that guardian for us. And that law was the guardian for Israel, even for show, showing them, hey, let's straighten out. This is who we are. This is who God's made us to be. This is how we identify as God's children. But we are not putting all of our, our efforts and all of our time into this or our, or our salvation, our hope in this guardian. Because I have some parents that are taking care of me. My parents are going to be my parents forever. This guardian might come and go. right? But I am going to put my, my hope in the guardian, or sorry, in the parents, in the father. So the, the guardian's job was to cooperate with the father and the mother in the guidance of the child until the child grew up and they were fully grown and they graduated out of the care. For us, this, the guardian for us is the law. And, and it's both written on, on stone and tablets, right, and in our hearts. And it cooperates with the father and the mother, right, but for us, the father, promising to guide us into all truth convincing us of our need for a Savior, our, our heirs, and pointing us to the grace and love of God in Christ through the promise. The law is the guardian helping us shape up and align with and look like our Father, but it's not what provides salvation. It's what gets us ready so we can exhibit faith and be heirs, sons and daughters of the Most High. And that final verse there, in 26, it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. One of the, one of the fallacies I want us to make sure we make a, 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 a clar clarification or a distinction with is this. Some people would say, oh, we're all children of God. 
Well, as far as creation, we're all creation of God. We're all created in God's image. But we are not all sons of God or daughters of God. That is reserved for those who believe in faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who are saved by His grace through faith in Christ alone. Then we become heirs. Then we become sons and daughters adopted into the family of God and heirs according to the promise of Abraham. We can't just say, oh, we're all, and that's not what he says here, for you're all sons and daughters. You are all because you're no longer under the guardian or the law. You're under faith in Christ. You're in Christ. He goes on to say that in the next part, that those who are found in Christ are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We have to understand that it's not contrary. God's not working against himself. The law is there, and it's to help shape us into into an image and conform us into what God wants us to look like. But ultimately what it does is it points us to the Savior. It cooperates with the promise so that we can receive the promise. And that's the final point we find here. The law points us to unity in Christ. Unity in Christ Jesus. Let's look at 27 through 29. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise, not the law, according, according to the promise of God. I want to talk briefly about this word baptized. It does not mean the same thing we do up here. Being baptized into Christ. See, this is, some people would argue, oh, see, you need to be baptized in Christ to be saved. If you're not baptized, you're not going to heaven. Paul has just argued so fervently for three whole chapters against adding anything to the gospel. Why would, we, why would we look at that and say that that's what he's doing now? This is What it means is being baptized in Christ, is being immersed in Christ Jesus, that we are literally in him, and that's how we are found, in Christ Jesus. That I am not looking at a righteousness of my own, look at me, look how good I am, that I had to empty myself and let him fill me up and wrap me with his robe. That when I stand before God Almighty, he sees his son Jesus Christ wrapped around me and a righteousness not from me but from him. That is what it means to be immersed or baptized into Christ Jesus. It's not, it's not being dunked in the tank. That's the outward profession of that inward, inward faith that we exhibited, that belief that we had. We make a real personal decision to, to believe on Christ Jesus. And then our lives begin to be, we say we're saved by grace, right, through faith, and then we live by grace through faith, showing the world that we are not ashamed of the God who saved us. So it does not mean that. But it means for as many of you have been immersed into Christ and put on Christ like a garment, that you've made that decision in faith to trust in the grace of Jesus Christ. Those now, are there's no Jew, no Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. See, all of these distinctions, male, female, slave or free, and, and, and these distinctions were big back in the day. And some of those distinctions are big today. We could, we could add our own distinctions in there today. But all of these distinctions... They're of no value and of no handicap when it comes to our spiritual relationship to God in Christ Jesus. It is by God's grace that we are made one in Christ alone. The last scripture reference, I want you to turn to Genesis. This is the last one. Genesis chapter 13. 
12, chapter 12. You can read 13 later today. Genesis, first book of the Bible. And we're going to read Genesis 12, just the first three, the first three uh, verses here. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, from your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. Last part of verse 3. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, that's not the lovey-dovey. Oh, everyone's going to be a child of God. But what God is saying is that Abraham, through you, not just your direct descendants who are related to you by DNA, but through you, I will bring many nations, many people from many nations all around the world to faith in the promise of God. Amen? That's what God does. That's what, that's what the promise does, is it unites. The law would divide, and we saw that with Peter a few, a few weeks ago, when, when he would eat with the, the Jews, but not in front of the Gentiles, he wouldn't eat with them. And it was causing the Gentiles to be like, what are, are we worse or le- you know, are we lesser class? See, we are all united through the promise in Jesus Christ. The law points us to our need for grace by faith in Christ alone. And if we are in Christ by faith, then we all, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, we are all heirs to the promise of God with Abraham. Amen? And that's, that's why the promise is so rich. But the law is cooperating with it. Okay? Let's stand and pray. Father, we are so humbled and grateful for the grace you have given us. We're humbled by even the condemnation or curse we feel under the law. And as we feel that, as we feel the the need for a Savior, we are so grateful that you have provided that in Christ Jesus. We ask that you would move us more and more into obedience and in line with you and your word. We want to look like the, the body, the church that you have called us to be. Not one that's clinging to the law, for salvation, but one that holds to your standards because you are glorious and great and one that is saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We thank you for that. We worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we close, it's, it's always an opportunity to respond. And I'll be up front, and if you'd like to pray, I'd love to, I'd love to pray with you if you need someone to pray with. Maybe you need to grab the person next to you and say, I need to, I need to pray with me.